Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And Andy, sometimes you don't need to know you, that you had to ask a question until you get the answer. This week, that answer is Dr. Jason Wilson, and the question is, what if Crocodile Dundee moved to Portland? Thanks for joining us, Jason. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Cam. Nice to be here, as always. Our correspondent from Biden's America, how's it all going over there? The the comparisons to the sort of Konstantin Chenyanko era Soviet Union are probably overdone, but like, there does seem to be something weirdly sclerotic and, I don't know, formulaic and brittle, I guess, about the way in which the administration is responding to various things that are happening internally and externally at the moment. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's odd. I mean, I saw a poll yesterday, which is the first one I'd seen, that was indicating, and I've forgotten the pollster, but it wasn't Rasmussen or whatever, that was indicating in the context of recent elections, a pretty comfortable Trump victory. And like, I I didn't even find it surprising. There's just something really listless and the whole thing seems, the whole enterprise seems pretty becalmed at the moment. And I guess the way in which they're approaching this whole situation in Gaza exemplifies that in a pretty terrible way. So it's not, yeah, it's, it's weird that, there doesn't they seem to be mishandling everything including this in a way that's almost stubborn yeah are we witnessing the death of american liberalism jason well i don't know about that it's it certainly seems to me to be to the extent that there's that there is a, a, an enduring nexus between American liberalism and the and the Democratic Party, maybe like I wouldn't necessarily want to conflate those two things. Certainly, it seems to be a crisis for the Democratic Party. I mean, if you look again at at, at Gaza, which is probably top of everyone's mind at the moment, there's there's obviously a really pronounced divide within the Democratic Party over that, and and it and that. That's not necessarily reflected numerically in the composition of Congress, but is mainly more reflected in, in, in what seemed to be, according to a public opinion polling, really stark generational divides on, on the issue of Israel's conduct, I guess, uh, in Gaza, not, not only now, but over time. And it seems to be that 
while Biden and Hillary Clinton has has spoken publicly about the situation, arguing very strongly against the ceasefire because, according to her, that's what Hamas wants. Other Democrats of that vintage seem to be stuck almost in this ride or die with, 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 with Israel mood, really, that's even more pro-Israel than maybe even Bill Clinton was in, in some ways, who at least tried to perform at even-handedness in, in, in coming to the two-state solution and the Camp David stuff. But but they seem to be ride or die for Israel, and, and, and it's dawning on them. It's dawning on people also in, in, in the the organs of liberal opinion, I guess. It seems to be dawning on people that, that there's this whole generation or more whose, whose view of this situation is, is, is diametrically opposed to that. A lot of those people, I guess, identify with the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party and maybe the like DSA-adjacent wing, your AOCs, etc., the squad-type people. And also maybe once would have identified with Bernie Sanders, who <laughs> who who's... Former supporters seem to be rather disappointed with his take on the situation. But, but like, obviously the situation in Gaza is not simply just a, a backdrop against which to assess the, the prospects of the Democratic Party. And I hope I'm not coming across like that. But it is, it is odd that, that, that maybe it's not like the death knell of American liberalism. Maybe, maybe the people who who may or may not choose to, to, to get out and vote for Democrats, have moved on this issue and the leadership of the party has not, has not moved with them. And, and Biden, I think, one of the cliches about him is that he's always dead centre of, of the Democratic Party, wherever it happens to be. And, and some had observed, I guess, that since being in since he became president, there's a lot of stuff he's done that is significantly to the left of what we saw from the Obama administration, for example, on a whole range of stuff on on economics and social policy and and, and even the environment to some extent, actually trying to legislatively deal with climate change and stuff. As, as ineffectual as it ultimately might turn out to be, it it's something where, where previously there was nothing. But on this specific issue, yeah, it seems like the leadership of the party is not where, I guess, the the, the, the grassroots that they might hope to have vote for them are. I, I guess there's, there's a 4D chess reading of what he's been doing as well that I've seen rehearsed in places like Axios and even the New York Times where they're trying to give this behind the curtain analysis like like he's got to be unstinting in his support of Israel in public so that he still has a channel of communication open and he's using that to try and restrain them well that's that's clearly not working and i think that was the latest reporting like that the administration is frustrated that, that that israel is not responding to their to their requests for restraint and all of this is in the background all we all we know in public is that biden's like i said unstinting in his support of israel and whatever it might do so the 4d chess reading though is is, it seems i mean let's assume it's true let's assume that a the price of being able to talk to israel in the background is is is, uh, unambiguous support for them in public that doesn't seem great (laughs) <laughs> but but 
and it doesn't seem to be working. And and it's not clear to me why I – let's say it's all true. It, it doesn't seem to matter, right? It doesn't seem to make a difference if, if all of that is true or not. The, the net result is Biden's publicly supporting Israel who are, who are doing whatever they want. I mean, there's some political precedent for it from the previous administration. You had that situation where Donald Trump is you know, seemingly colluding with Russia and running all of these low-level scams and stuff. And the behind the scenes, he was shutting down you know, child abuse rings. Yeah, so that's true. It, yeah. it, it has happened. Yeah, it's the esoteric, exoteric model of the presidency, right? Like what they say in public, actually, that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got to say that in terms of Australia, in relation to the United States and foreign policy, I mean... I, I guess I could have guessed where the Albanese government would go. I could have guessed that they would just simply repeat whatever the US policy was, right? Because that's that's just what every Australian government has done since I since I've been alive. That's what friends are for, Jason. Yeah, I was trying to think of the last time an Australian go- there was any distance between an Australian government and a US government on some matter of foreign policy. And and the only example I could think of was that uh, I think I think it was still Hawke at this point, uh, but but not long before it transitioned to Keating, when Gulf War One happened, the distance, the daylight, whatever was, they didn't actually send in troops; they sent a hospital ship or something. So it was like, well, okay, yeah, we're we're, we're supportive, but we're going to like do the bare minimum, I guess. And and that's the only time I can remember an Australian government doing anything at variance with the US on foreign policy. And maybe that's a whole other discussion. But but the unfortunate thing is that, that for your listeners, is that the way in which the Biden administration sets its foreign policy is, is basically going to be the default setting for Australia. And, and that's – I don't know if that's translating to similar problems there that you're seeing, but – yeah, I mean, it's 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 a problem because there is still this. However much we might want to talk about U.S. decline, they still exercise this leadership when it comes to allies, and there there is no more steadfast geopolitical ally for the U.S. than than, than Australia, and Australia even more so. People will say that that would be Israel, but but <laughs> Israel. If, we're, if what we're being told about what's going on in the background is true, Israel actually is running an independent poli- foreign policy in a way that Australia hasn't in my memory, in my lifetime. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio, or you could also listen on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Jason Wilson. Jason, I wanted to run a tweet past you or a, a post from x.com from a yeah. conservative thinker, Christopher Rufo. Oh, yeah. Who on uh, the 13th of October wrote conservatives, and he, this is as part of his ongoing theme of saying the quiet part out loud about what they plan on doing, which he's previously done with the trans issue and other issues. He writes, conservatives need to create a strong association between Hamas, BLM, DSA, and academic, quote, decolonization, quote, in the public mind. Connect the dots that attack, delegitimize, and discredit. Make the center-left disavow them. Make them political untouchables. 
maybe could you give our listeners a little background on Christopher Rufo and your assessment on how that seems to be going for him? So Christopher Rufo is a guy, he he was a, a documentary filmmaker and, and he made he made documentary films for like PBS and like he had a production company and made these documentaries whose politics I would say was was like milk toast liberalism like Netflix friendly stories of diversity and people overcoming the odds and quirky stuff stuff like that and then suddenly I think it was in I believe it was in 2018 the, the city of Seattle wanted to pass a tax to on on higher income earners there's one of those here in Portland as well and he he objected to that and and also had started talking publicly about in not very complimentary terms about houselessness and houseless people in Seattle and and what the real solution to that is none of this none of this coddling them and then he ran actually for for the city council in Seattle and then suddenly He's masterminding – well, he started by masterminding, and this would have been 2019, 2020. He started by masterminding the whole critical race theory moral panic. Like, like he really can claim credit, I think, from, from turning the idea of – turning critical race theory from the name of a pretty obscure academic practice or discipline into a folk devil, really, on the right. Uh, and, and that was seen as really successful and as politically useful to the right. Then he started on the woke stuff, and now he's he's a real, really close ally of DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who's also a presidential candidate. So DeSantis, apparently inspired by Rufo, passed something called the Stop Woke Act, <laughs> which he's he's passed so many now there's a don't say gay law which is really restrict restricts affirming education of any kind for anything in the cur- curriculum that might affirm lgbtq identity on the part of students and but yeah the stop woke act <laughs> i i actually forget what the details of that that particular actor were oh, maybe i'll look it up but anyway Rufo so inspired that 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 DeSantis actually invited him to down to Tallahassee to to be present at the signing of the Stop Woke Act law because he had so informed DeSantis's own campaigning. I mean, in in 2022 when he was running for re-election as governor, uh, DeSantis really campaigned uh, on uh, as an anti-woke was an anti-woke campaign. So. Yeah, and and he then appointed Rufo as as one of the trustees of Florida New College. Now, the New College in Florida is a particular institution that, like Evergreen in Washington, is another example. There are there are state uh, colleges, state funded colleges, but which have previously had this this remit or this permission to offer a particular liberal education which is a little more a little more radical maybe certainly attracts people who are interested in activism and and maybe interested in getting into the activist nonprofit world and maybe an experimental curriculum that goes along with that but that's all been pulled back by these these right-wing trustees that the the DeSantis appointed in I guess it was at the beginning of this year January 2023 so uh, the stop woke act prohibits teaching that 
For example, a person by virtue of his or her race, color, national origin, or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive. So it's aimed at this idea that they have that curriculums are full of stuff that are just telling white kids that they're oppressors or colonists or whatever, and, and that, that that's happening in schools and stuff. And this this prevents that from, from happening. So he's, he's really been a, the, a person who has been instrumental in putting right-wing culture wars on a new footing. He has been heralded as and fancies himself as some strategic thinker who knows intimately how the left thinks and how to how to exploit the weaknesses in what the left does and thinks in order to convert that into into electoral results, election victories. Now there are very big questions about whether or not I, I mean a lot of Republicans inspired by Rufo, importantly Rufo, but others really ran on anti-trans, anti-drag queen story hour type platforms. And and when the wash up, it didn't actually seem to go that well. They underperformed in the in, in that 2022 midterm election, I, I think is, is and so there, there are questions about whether or not he is actually a strategic genius, I guess, and whether, whether his ideas about electoral politics are any good, whether or not the critical race theory thing was maybe a bit of a fluke or even questions about what that actually delivered. But certainly, he's good at branding, I guess, and good at developing ideas that, that take on a certain life uh, in conservative media and, and circulate in that way. And, and maybe via primary voters, via the grassroots, encourage politicians to, to head in a certain direction. But I guess the question is whether that appeals to anyone outside the Republican base who are going to vote for these guys anyway. So he wrote a book. Oh, what was his book called? It's, a, it's, it's really just a re- re- rehearsal. It's called America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquers Everything. So that was published this year. And it's really a rehearsal of the cultural Marxist narrative again. It talks a lot about how critical theorists came over from Germany and launched this intellectual apparatus that was meant to undermine American society from within. And 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 that brings. I actually wrote a story about him last month because he has been very. I should be careful here. He's been very. Let's say he's been very non-judgmental when it comes to platforming and interacting with people who. Anyone in electoral politics, even DeSantis, may want to keep at arm's length. So my story was about how he ran a Twitter space and. He was tossing up this idea of no enemies to the right, which people on the right have been tossing around because, like, basically, you, you, if, some, if the left is trying to cancel someone, you should, you should just defend them. You should never criticize anyone on the right. And one of the people who has been pushing that idea is a guy called Charles Haywood, who I've also written about, who has a, he has a national network of men-only, invitation-only lodges called the Society for American Civic Renewal, which has its own logo that's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit fashy, the whole vibe. And he's talking about how he's got a compound and he just needs some guys to, to uh, talking about how they might have to fight against the federal government at some point. This stuff, someone who Republicans before 2016 definitely would want to want to have kept at arm's length. And he had a very, you know, hospitable, he hosted a very hospitable conversation between him and some other people about this idea. Anyway, but cut to now. 
he's got this habit, and and a, a lot of them are doing this now. Where they that that idea. Let's say we're going to. I mean, what he's trying to say is we're we're going to wedge, we're going to wedge the left on this issue, right? Like liberals, lib, like like more centrist liberals. We can split them off from from the prog- more progressive left on this issue, and we can we can associate progressives with Hamas and just just like completely collapse any distinction that exists between them and Hamas and maybe we can tar the liberals with that brush or at least have have them have to make a decision right like the wedge politics thing but it's the thing that i mean i don't know i'm i'm not in the business of electoral politics but if i were i imagine that's the conversation you might want to have behind closed doors or via text with someone who you might want to be wanting to influence but the curious thing is that it's not just him. There are others on that new Republican far right who who seem to want to perform this this strategist role in public and and just say these things out loud, which is strange because it it gives a hostage to fortune. Because I whatever three weeks on from him tweeting that out, right? I mean, how, how does it look? I mean, where is American public opinion now? I mean, where is it going to be? In a month, I mean, I I feel like, I mean, the other curious thing about what Biden's doing is, I, I really feel like that there's a basic revulsion that a lot of people have about the way in which this war is being conducted, right? And particularly the effect it's having on children in Gaza, right? And bombing hospitals and stuff like that. I mean, I don't think, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's. I think that's always going to be something that puts anyone off who's not just simply a committed Islamophobe or whatever, who, who just thinks that the, the, the collective punishment of Gazans is fine. I think the public opinion is swinging, and I think that's being reflected in the way that even outlets like CNN and the New York Times and, good Lord, the Financial Times have, have been pretty critical of, of, of Israel's conduct in this war. And, and I don't think that they're... I don't think they're trying to do something that's trying to challenge their readership. I think that that they're responding to what they see as a shift in, in public opinion or or what is going to be a shift in public opinion given that Israel's going to continue, the IDF or whatever is going to continue conducting this war in the way that it has been. I mean, I don't know. I, and I don't know if that's true in Australia as well, but my sense is, and, and there is some polling that suggests this, which is that whereas U.S. public opinion, along with the, the political class, w- would have previously been pretty, pretty committed, pretty on Israel's side, so to speak, I feel like that's softening significantly because because of the images that are coming back from from Gaza of, of what's happening there. Is is that a sense that you guys, or is there polling that you've seen in Australia that's similar, or? Do you think I'm wrong? Do you think I'm right or wrong about U.S. public opinion? I mean, I, I just feel like that's that's my assessment anyway of what Rufo did. It's like, well, maybe you're going to be able to do that, or maybe this is just going to become so horrific that you're going to be one of the people who's left holding the bag when when public opinion actually just turns decisively against what's happening. Well, I mean, like you, I'm not a an expert political strategist. But I do agree that blowing up hospitals can be a bit of a tough sell sometimes to the populace. 
I reckon it's one of those ones where most people are against exploding a hospital. And so, yeah, I, yeah. Think, you're, I think you're right on that. For, like, there's an, there's an information war that's going on as well. And from what I can tell, the pro-Israel side is not doing very well. It, it's, well, yeah. And either way, it seems to me that they've lost ground relative to, I don't know, 2014, 2001. I mean, look... It, it's stunning that that's happened given what Hamas did. I mean, the, the Hamas's attack was like, I mean, I, I just think that like Hamas's attack also was an attack on civilians and children and senior citizens, even Holocaust survivors, as I understand it, were, were, were caught up and killed or kidnapped or hurt in that. And And so to start from there and to then... In the court of global public opinion, it, 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 everything you see almost at the moment is a is a is a criticism of Israel or a, a convoluted defense of whatever they might happen to be doing. It just seems like it's it's amazing in that sense that that their response to what was a terrible crime, a ghastly crime, has has been so brutal that that it, things seem to have swung around. Certainly, they, it seems that way in the US. And you're getting these, when you read the reporting in outlets like the New York Times, you've, you've got to be a bit tea leavesy in terms of like, well, what, what off the record stuff are they getting? And, and, and what are they being told by the administration? And who's briefing them? And it just seems like some of the reporting I've seen in like the New York Times and the Washington Post seems to be coming from advisors who are saying like, who is preparing the ground for like, well, yeah, eventually we're just going to, there's going to be too much pressure and we're going to have to call for a ceasefire, which it's, it's crazy that that's, it's so difficult to get to that point. But what I'm saying, like they, people seem to be almost briefing against the president and the administration, people who work for the administration, or at least preparing the ground for like, well, yeah, we're, we're getting there. Obviously we can't keep doing this thing, which is, which is, a turn up, I would say, for sure. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you think like there's any chance of that happening in Australia or I don't know? A chance of? Well, a break, I guess, with, 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 with Israel in terms of Australia's rhetoric or posture or whatever on all of that. I mean, I, I don't know how it's being covered there exactly. I don't know what people are seeing or how – how the Albanese and, and uh, Albanese and Wong's comments are being passed, and what whether they're under any pressure to, to to perhaps revise that and call for a ceasefire. I think they're they're definitely under pressure. Mm. I think the conflict has exposed a potentially growing rupture between the political establishment in Australia and the people. Mm. Um, we've witnessed some of the, I think, in fact, the largest um, demonstrations of solidarity yeah. um, here. And I suppose I think it's curious um, that in Melbourne on Sunday there were tens of thousands of people marching, demanding a ceasefire, and the age did not even bother to report on it. Wow. Uh, which I thought was quite, well, curious. And there have been attempts to, I think, in the, the weeks following the Hamas attack and the Israeli retaliation, 
very statements were being made by uh, members of the political establishment decrying, denouncing the Hamas attack and calling upon solidarity with Israel, within the Labor movement in particular. Mm. That doesn't seem to have generated a great deal of support, and I think the longer things grind on, the more difficult it is to support the actions of the Israeli state. So I guess if I think there's a distinction between um, US and Australian support, then it's reflected in the UN General Assembly resolution, which uh, the US voted against and uh, Australia abstained from. Mm. That's about the degree of difference at the moment. But certainly in their, you can pass their statements by them, I mean Elbow and Wong and so on, as indicating that they're forced, or not forced, but prepared to admit concerns, humanitarian concerns. But again, I guess like this is quite diplomacy and so on and so forth, and the radical inadequacy of those responses is becoming increasingly clear to an increasingly larger number of people. But at this stage, apart from a few isolated actions in ports in the United States, potentially Australia, that's not translated into any action to beyond marching and rallying and calling for a change in political direction. I, I mean, I guess the other thing is I wondered, Jason, if you have on the one hand <clears throat> uh, Biden, Biden's response, how has the, the Donald, what's his, being, his public pronouncements on the situation? Uh, it was interesting. I, if I recall correctly, his first response, and <laughs> I mean, I don't know, his first response was to roast Benjamin Netanyahu over the, I guess, a perceived failure in intelligence or whatever. The, the thing, there was a little bit of a narrative around that initially, which which may or may not be feeding into the brutality of the response. I mean, there, there was a, it seems, certainly seems like there was a domestic criticism in Israel over just how, how did this happen, given... I guess their boasts about how tightly they have their border lockdown and Gaza lockdown, and and, and Donald played into that. He 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 dinged Bibi, and that was his first reaction. And and maybe it was authentic. I think that there's a as always there's a personal grudge maybe animating that as well in the sense that I, I believe that Bibi was one of the first world leaders to congratulate. Joe Biden on on his election, <laughs> and and Trump moved the Trump moved the M, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. I, I think that, which obviously was well received by by Netanyahu and and other members of that government, which has been succeeded by another government, which is far more radical. But I think maybe Donald thought that Bibi was his friend or something, <laughs> and so there may have been some personal grudge or animus in there but but it's interesting it's interesting that that he since 2016 i guess he has made certain positions possible on the right in the u.s that weren't possible in the bush years and and are still not possible for some people like i don't i don't think any other national Republicans have openly criticised Israel over its intelligence failures in that way. I'm not aware of any. Maybe a congressman here or there has, but I, I'm not sure. But I don't think so. Certainly not anyone with his prominence. And and in fact, the other people with presidential – well, actually, oh, 
I, I believe that in saying that, he actually induced a whole lot of other presidential candidates to really criticize him for the first time. So it's still a little out there. But I don't know. I mean, he's uh, – to the extent that he has any coherent politics at all, he seems to be an instinctive isolationist, even though he, he handed Israel – a favour that, that no other president thought that they could get away with or, or wanted to do in the, in the sense of really undermining the Palestinian claim on, on, on part of Jerusalem. Like, I, I, I just wonder, I guess, whether there's more change to come in, in foreign policy attitudes on the right in the US. Because... Prior to the Second World War, isolationism was was part of what it meant to be on the right in the U.S. All of the criticism uh, of Roosevelt for trying to involve the United States in, in the Second World War came from the right, basically. I mean, perhaps intermittently early on from, from communists as well, but like in terms of parties of government and, and electorally viable political forces like yeah, I mean, there was the 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 whole America First movement, and yeah, like there was there was really sharp and stiff opposition to to the the United States entering the Second World War, and and and, and the most significant source of that was on the right, and and they had been they had had that attitude in the First World War as well, and the whole internationalizing project the Woodrow Wilson like it all came from the Democrats really that that, that idea of, of the United States as world lead, a world leader now obviously that changed after the Second World War due to the supervening necessity of anti-communism and and like competing with with this communist power in the form of the USSR and and like things changed and there was a realignment but but Things have changed back, and to some extent at least, and what they call paleoconservatives has become more ascendant again, more ascendant on the right than they have been in decades, and Trump's still talking about pulling out of NATO should he become president again, and and there's this mood for withdrawing. Now, I, I think Israel is still a special case. I think that is true for all kinds of reasons. I think it's true because maybe people oversell the the odd and maybe fake philo-Semitism of, of the, the Christian right, because there are theological reasons amongst the evangelical Christians that they want the Jews to go back to Israel because that's a precondition of the millennium, right. of the return of Christ to earth. I, I think that might be oversold. I think it's more of an institutional thing at this point. And actually, there was a good story in The Nation over the weekend about how Netanyahu, together with Sheldon Adelson, really put together a really, from 2015, put together a really well-funded and tightly orchestrated campaign to try to delegitimize boycotts, divestments, and, and sanctions as a, as a means of protest against what advocates of that will say is the Israeli, illegitimate Israeli occupation of, of Palestine. So there was a and so that's worth reading if, if people haven't read it. It's in the nation. It's called While Israel Slept, I, I believe the story is called. And the argument it's making is that they were so preoccupied with this effort they were making in US domestic politics that they maybe took their eye off the ball in terms of their own border. I mean, I don't, I don't know about that, but but it's worth a read because it, it shows how 
how interested, I guess, Israel's government is in trying to shape U.S. public opinion, if it can, with it, with the aid of its its friends here, and that's and that's you've got, and like again, I I think that there are definitely, I think, overstatements of the influence of Israel on on U.S. public opinion and U.S. politics, and and some of those overstatements are undoubtedly anti-Semitic. There are stories about how the Jews control the media and politics, right? Like, like definitely there's stuff that verge, verges over into that territory. But I think we can say that with, with, with groups like APAC, with friends like Adelson, who's dead now, but with friends like Adelson, they, they can create incentives for politicians, right? They can create incentives for politicians, particularly Republicans, but also Democrats. Like that, I mean... It's just easier if you have political aspirations to offer your unqualified support for Israel. And and then that's just like one flank that you don't have to deal with, right? And 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 APAC definitely have primary people, et cetera, et cetera. But 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 that's just an example, I think, of the the, the institutional yeah. The, the 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 Republican loyalty to Israel is ideological. But it's also a, a matter of institutional effects, I think, and and the overlaps and connections between the Republican Party and 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 the campaigns of particular politicians, right, and a whole lot of organisations that exist to make sure that if they can, that the US that that the US political class is 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 basically reflexively pro-Israel. But but maybe where, I mean, if if, if there's a crisis, it may be. A crisis of that that network of institutions, right, and that mechanism for creating incentives, because like that's an incentive until it's not, right? Until your voters are saying that they're not going to, as people are with Biden, they're not going to show up and turn out to vote for this guy on the basis of what he, what he's doing in response to to the situation in Gaza. So I don't know. I mean. Where do we start? Oh, Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I do wonder whether the, the conditions may come about so that there is a more, frankly, uh, or more thoroughgoing isolationist position on the right, which is not the same as being committed to peace. It's not the same as being anti-war, as people on the left understand it. It's 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 just a, it's 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 a selfishness, really. And 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 also is often rooted in in anti-Semitism and and false understandings of the way in which global politics unfolds and, and who's controlling what, right? But and it's certainly the America First movement ahead of World War Two was was anti-Semitic and was led by anti-Semites. So it, it's complicated, but I, I do wonder if if there's going to be I, I wonder what it would take to break the nexus between the Israeli state and the Likud party and 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 the American right. I wonder what it would take. Well, Jason, one conservative who has broken ranks is ScoMo. Oh, yeah. Who, who along with Bojo, travelled to Israel just a few days ago, and I saw him quoted as saying that a, a two-state solution isn't possible if one of the states isn't competent, which seemed like a fairly damning indictment of the Israeli state, which was famously not in a very, didn't have a very stable government. 
I think that's what he was getting at. Maybe maybe I was misinterpreting. <laughs> so what is he is he arguing for a one state solution? Because that would be interesting. Well, no, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I think he was just saying things. He was definitely saying, uh, "We can't have a ceasefire because that would be playing into the hands of Hamas." I, I, I interpreted him as saying, "What's the problem?" Yeah, yeah, probably. Solution to I, what? I mean, but it is interesting, right? In the in Australia or the US, right? Like, I mean, what what is Okay, let's zoom out from whether or not you have the feel like you have the wherewithal to, to to call for a ceasefire when hospitals are getting bombed and children are dying in the thousands. Zoom out a little. I mean, what I think the the US is still officially committed to a two state solution as 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 their policy. That seems such like such a remote possibility at this point that it's just it's like a dead letter, right? And I'm I'm sure I'm sure Australia is is similarly committed to a two state solution. Israel is never going to agree. I, I shouldn't think Israel, as it's currently constituted with with the political dynamics it has in place, is never going to like integrate Palestinians into a a unitary democratic state where they have the same rights as anyone else and the same franchise as anyone else, right? It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And, and so it's, it's, it's strange that there aren't any ideas that seem viable floating around amongst world leaders or certainly those in the West, right? There's, there's no one who's really and, – and Biden really has a particular responsibility here if, if, as he's claimed repeatedly, that he's all about returning – the U.S. to its pre-Trumpian prestige and influence, like he probably owes us an idea that's that goes beyond whether or not there should be a ceasefire that addresses the root problem here. And it doesn't seem like anyone really has any. It, it doesn't seem like there's been a new idea or a new approach to this in 30 years, it's, which is striking, right? Like it, it doesn't seem like there is any. I, I mean. The lack of political will to sort of challenge Israel or really say anything in public that might indicate disapproval of what they're currently doing, right, is is downstream from the fact that that, that there doesn't seem to be any. I, I mean, t- to achieve any solution, right, like if it would it would have to be some compromise, right, and Israel would have to give anything up, to give something up, right, uh, as presumably with the Palestinians. I mean, if the if 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 neither side is going to get exactly what it wants and and there's going to be some accommodation presumably that means that like either side is going to have to move in a direction that that, that maybe ideally they wouldn't want to but but that would require someone to with sufficient authority to to tell Israel that that's that's what needs to, to tell the Israeli government that that's what needs to happen right and it just doesn't seem like that just does not seem like it's on the cards at all. It doesn't seem like there's any more fundamental analysis of this situation that, that isn't just stuck in 1994. I don't know. It, it's it, that's what seems weird to me as well. Like there's no policy really seems viable or realistic. I mean, am I? Am, is, is do you get that impression as well? I mean, my impression is that part of the disquiet on the part of the Biden administration and presumably other governments is there's not a convincing case that's been put by the Israeli government with regards to the ultimate aim and purposes of this action. 
Right. Other than the effects that it seems to be having, which is the ethnic cleansing of those territories, which is approaching the crime of genocide. So it's not, as far as, well, who knows? It's not clear that the intent is to establish some condition in which some more peaceable settlement could be arrived at. But I think that, to some extent, that just points to the fundamental nature of the conflict and colonial settlerism. So, yeah, no, it's it's a really good point, right? Like, the, the, what 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 actually are the aims of this military action, right? Like, what what are you claiming that this is going to deliver? I I don't think that I don't <laughs> I don't think they're they're even bothering with that, right? It just seems like it it's it seems like maybe they're they're fitting it to whatever anger there may be in 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 their own domestic public opinion, right? Like so and and maybe trying to head off or address criticisms of the intelligence failures. That might may be part of the aim. But none of this is explicit and there's certainly not well we're gonna do this, 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 this and this and the problem's gonna be solved, which A makes you wonder if there is an aim, but it's not fit for it's not seen as being fit for public consumption around the world or or if it's genuinely aimless and and genuinely aimless military actions with no goal or endpoint i mean uh, it it sounds like a a recipe almost for indiscriminate killing and so either way it doesn't sound good so so yeah i mean could they at least be sort of held to some idea that that there is a, a, an end in sight here, that there is like a point at which the, the objectives will be achieved and the bombing can stop. Like, even if it's unpalatable to, 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 to public opinion, having some like, having some goal would at least offer some accountability in terms of, well, you should stop now. You've done that. But that doesn't seem to be, they don't even seem to be being held to that, which is, which just suggests that their plan is to just keep going with this as long as they want to, or they're not. They're certainly not being told that that, that that's something that, that that's unacceptable. No one's no one's saying that. I don't know. I think I've just restated what you said, but it it, it is striking. I mean, I also think that the one aim might be to retrieve hostages, but the problem is that as many within Israel have protested, the actions of the military is actually endangering these lives. Mm. And there's a growing sense in which, I suppose, they've been abandoned. And that is presents particular problems for the Netanyahu administration. Mm. It's possible that that decision to conduct the war in such a way as to um, make it more difficult to those people to be liberated from their captivity has essentially been excluded. I mean, even the just the destruction that's been wrought would inevitably result in the deaths of the hostages. It doesn't seem to be... I guess I, I say this in terms of what, what might be a name that would be... I mean, they have mentioned... Broadly palatable. D- destroying Hamas, right? Or, or, or yeah, killing sure. the leadership of Hamas. But that's... It just seems like... It doesn't seem like 
there's there's a list of people who, you know what i mean like it just seems like that who who is hamas is going to be determined by by the idf like in the moment i don't know i mean in that case i mean in that context the, the point has been made that it's certainly possible to physically eliminate to murder hamas its leadership and so on but the effects of the war itself is going to generate as in countless other examples historical contemporary even more determined and bloodier resistance. I mean, going to, yeah. I mean, I think the same point has been made in terms of the 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 march to return was, as I understand, largely peaceful, violent action by segments of Palestinian civil society that was brutally repressed. Mm. People were massacred. Essentially, the, the the options are being limited in terms of what forms of resistance can be actually manifested. Yeah. And and that whole struggle is being it's not a political struggle in a sense, it's a military struggle. It's a question of powers of life and death and who will triumph. It's got and, and that's not a a process, I guess, which is subject to the the thing that's called global public opinion. It, it operates independently and following a different logic to those sorts of considerations. So I mean I think this is what also I mean, I could be wrong, but is creating not only anger, but a lot of despair when people look at the situation. Difficult to conceive of steps which retrieve it in some way or divert it away from what appears to be an even bloodier conclusion. It, it does feel, I mean, I'm just trying to, I was just thinking earlier, of, there were huge protests here in the US uh, over the weekend as well, and, and all around the world, really. And, and I suppose all that invites a comparison with the, the, the 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 huge protests against the invasion of Iraq in in two thousand three, which didn't didn't stop that invasion, obviously, but but it, it from my angle at least, and in the US, I, I was just looking actually. So Brookings did Brookings did some polling. They, they've got an article up the Brookings Institution, which are like. I don't know, centrist but liberal think tank. So they've got polling, public opinion on US policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian issue. The question, the polling question is, in general, what role do you want the United States to play in mediating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Should the United States lean towards Israel, lean towards the Palestinians, or lean towards neither side? Now, <laughs> Republicans were about half and half in June, and now they're 71 Seventy-two percent lean that they should lean towards Israel, and twenty twenty-five percent lean towards neither side, and one point two percent lean towards the Palestinians. That hasn't shifted much. It was one point three percent, but there has been a change where the Democrats in June it was like seventy-three point four percent were saying should lean towards neither side and a slight edge towards Israel, and that's become now like. Actually, they've swung towards Israel a little as well. But independence, and so the wash-up is all respondents, whereas in June it was a quarter saying they should lean towards Israel of all respondents. Now it's 42%, and it's gone from 66 neither side to... Okay, so it does seem like actually on that basis that it's mixed and, and partisan, but yeah, we'll see. This is a University of Maryland critical issues poll. So 
that's not really suggesting that there has been a, a, a big swing in favour of, of the Palestinian side. If anything, there's been, you know, maybe more support heading for Israel. So that, that I mean, there may be other polls, but that's not explaining where the pressure that people are feeling might be coming from. It does seem like, according to some other polling, that people are worried about the US being drawn into a conflict. That, But it's also also very divided by age. So younger people are much more in favour of, of the Palestinian position. So anyway, uh, what I was going to say before was, from my angle, it, 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 it feels different to 2003 because, because, well, the US is not playing an active role in a sense. They're not, they're not invading another country. And it's a question of whether they support or excuse what, what Israel is doing. And that's probably a lot easier to maybe shift people on. I mean, I guess it still seems possible that Israel could end up somewhat isolated. I, I don't know. But it, it doesn't feel like, from my perspective or from my angle, it, in 2003 it felt like that was just, the US build-up to war was just a steamroller that was going to be very hard to stop. This seems like a more open, ambiguous question about how much damage someone like Biden wants to take in in the course of supporting Israel doing stuff that's appalling, really, and it, it is appalling people around the uh, around the world. So I don't know. It feels a little different. It feels like there's maybe more movement possible here. It, it was hard to see how the US could be stopped invading Iraq in, in, in 2003. It doesn't feel that hard to imagine them qualifying their support for Israel, if that's, if that's what people are asking for, or even calling for a ceasefire. It doesn't seem like that's... It, that, that doesn't seem as remote as, as, as stopping that build-up did. But I'm, I'm remembering... I'm trying to remember how I felt and how things looked... 20 years ago. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you think that's a useful comparison or not, or whether you, you agree with my assessment of the difference there. I mean, the fact that the previously the US state was directly engaged yeah. in, in invasion and occupation. Yeah, it is a very difficult thing to stop the US war machine, <laughs> even against popular opinion in the United States. But I, I guess I think of it in terms of insofar as the I mean, I don't know if the young people are being polled about the current conflict. Presumably, we're not active twenty years ago in opposition to the uh, to the wars in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think that generally it could be read as meaning that the failure of the peace movement to stop that these previous conflicts leaves traces, I suppose, which make it more difficult for people to simply return to the idea that what's required is to make a sensible appeal to authority to change direction. Mm. And it's been remarked on by any number of people that, you know, the largest demonstrations against war in possibly human history took place at that time and had and didn't stop the war. Mm. So it's not enough simply to assemble in large numbers and to make some demand. Mm. Uh, I think this conflict probably provides better opportunities for interventions 
because the US is not directly and massively invested in the invasion occupation of Gaza, West Bank and so on. So there's more room, I suppose, to exert some political pressure on the US political establishment to um, attenuate its support for these actions. So in some senses, it's arguable, I suppose, that there's more room within the US, which is what's, I suppose, the most relevant country for this to take place, to actually engage in actions. And to, I suppose, the, the difficulty, as I see it, is for the you know, liberalism, Biden, Democrats and so on, is how can they, it's becoming increasingly difficult to recuperate those elements within the democratic establishment yeah. because there just doesn't appear to be room for it. So where do people go? What do people do? I think that's what people are asking themselves generally yeah. about what is it I we can do to try and uh, bring this uh, carnage to an end. And so the focus is upon the links between uh, US manufacturers and the Israeli war machine and uh, attempting to uh, disrupt that to whatever extent is possible. And that's still to be played out. But I can't see how the longer this goes on, the more pressure is going to build. It just seems like the the, the, the worse conditions are, the more public opposition there will be outside of, you know, well, both within and outside of the Middle East, but especially in the AUKUS <laughs> and the West generally. Yeah. Well, AUKUS, I, I always forget about AUKUS. Yeah, don't forget about AUKUS. Well, we need to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Andy, did you have a, a final question? I just had one thing in talking about, I guess, returning to RUFO and US public opinion and propaganda. I wanted to have a brief question. I want to put a brief question, Jason, about uh, Rumble. And, oh, yeah. Uh, what's been rumbling on Rumble these days? So... <laughs> They they have been selected as the the official streaming partner partner for for the upcoming Republican presidential debate. For those who don't know, Rumble is a video sharing platform. I mean, a little like YouTube. Well, a lot like YouTube in the sense that you can upload videos there. Creators can upload videos there, and people can watch them. And I believe, like YouTube, there's forms of monetization available. But they've also they became something of a favorite on the right, especially as the 2020 election, I guess, wore on, and uh, especially after Jan 6, 2021, when there actually were a lot of deplatformings on on mainstream platforms, various right-wing influences encouraged people on the right to go to go use Rumble, where the sense was that there wasn't going to be the same censorship in, in their view as there is on, on YouTube, as there was on YouTube. So it started, it was founded in 2013. It was not a, a politically oriented site for, for the first five years, six years of its existence. It was, a, a, the original idea with it was that YouTube wasn't serving smaller creators well. They were going to help you monetize whatever, your, your viral cat video or whatever. But then having received this attention from the right, I mean, they really started marketing themselves as the, the sort of anti-cancel culture video platform. And they also started directly making deals with creators who they thought would, would be able to promote the platform well to the, to, to, to the kinds of people who they were looking to attract. So the big creators on there are people like Russell Brand, who, if people don't know, has gone from being 
a comedian and movie star to uh, a, a conspiracy theorist, I guess. During COVID, especially, he he really took on that role of medical putting out medical misinformation or just misinformation about the the public health response. Glenn Greenwald's on there, which is which is good to see. Dan Bongino is the biggest creator on there, and he's actually, according to their numbers anyway, and he's actually a part owner of, of the platform now. He's got Rumble stock. Yeah, I mean, so it's really, there's a site called Rumble Stats, which, which seems like pretty methodologically sound and reliable to me in the sense that it just, to the extent that you can rely on public, Rumble's public numbers, I mean, it just works off them. And if you look at the top 10 creators on there, they're all like either identifiable conservative broadcasters like like Bongino or conspiracy theorists or Republican politicians. I mean, Donald Trump, his channel just uploads videos of his speeches, but it's one of the biggest channels on there. Donald Trump Jr. has got a channel. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, but the problem is that, yeah, like there's obviously like, now there's an ideological character to the whole platform, but you don't have to go too far before you get like people like Stu Peters, who, especially since the Gaza thing kicked off, he's a conspiracy theorist and and really came to prominence also during COVID. But like his stuff has a much more explicitly anti-Semitic edge than anything put out by someone like Russell Brand. And especially since the Gaza thing started kicking off, I mean, he's he's been like referring to the Kaiser hypothesis, like like saying that the, the idea that the Jews currently in Israel aren't really Jews; they're they're Kaiserians. It's this long-held anti-Semitic idea about that that the, the Jews that we know aren't actually authentic; they're they're just a Turkic people from the steppes who converted to Judaism, and 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 they're maybe involved in some plan for world domination. I mean, just nonsense like this. And, and yeah, I mean, like all of these platforms that are, are sort of what you might call low moderation or the antidote to cancel culture, you're not, you're not going to get shut down here. I mean, that's just a rolling out a red carpet, really, for the content that has been banned from more mainstream platforms for a reason, right? <laughs> it's called free speech, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I guess, I guess Rumble. It's not clear that they have a viable business model. It's not clear that how they're planning to make money. They 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 tried to create their own. I, I think they do have their own their own ad network. They're providing the infrastructure for Truth Social, <laughs> like the web hosting, I guess, for Truth Social, which is Trump's Trump owned, Trump backed Twitter clone. And so they're they're a fairly central part of this alt tech infrastructure. But like all of these sites, it's just. It's just really not clear that there's a there's a viable business there, and anyone who can be on YouTube, where there are just more viewers, is on YouTube, and, and so you're really left with the people who are primarily using Rumble are either being paid for it in some deal, like like someone like Greenwald, or they're just not able to be on other platforms, and so some activists have targeted the platform on that basis via advertisers to say like this this platform is not brand safe is is the lingo so you don't want your ads appearing alongside this content and yeah they they the, the picture with advertising there is not clear but it's what is clear is that they don't have 
I, I haven't seen any ads for like BMW or anything on there. A lot of the ads are crap, and some some of the content they they don't seem to be running ads alongside just because maybe they've made a judgment about how toxic that content is. It's it's hard to say because they don't really engage in conversation about that stuff. So yeah, I just did a story the other week just pointing out some of the content that's on there, including Stu Peters, who is yeah, I, I think. He's been on Alex Jones's show a few times lately, and you, you, you get the sense that the torch is being passed. <laughs> like, Stu is the new, and much more, even more ugly than Alex Jones, I think, face of, of, of that current in American conspiracy broadcasting. And it is much more explicitly, like I said, explicitly anti-Semitic, whereas I think rarely was Alex Jones explicitly anti-Semitic, maybe more like, you know, implicitly in the sense that all, all conspiracy theories that lump in globalists and stuff head in that direction eventually, right? But but yeah, I mean it's 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 a shame that the Republican Party has chosen to legitimize that platform, I think, and I guess effectively portray them as a legitimate media outlet from from, from my point of view, just because I would have thought that a lot of the stuff on there, again, pre-2016, Republicans wouldn't have wanted to, to, to be associated with that either. But I guess that's where we're at at this point. Jason, we'll have to leave it there. If people want to find you online, you've got a lot of stories coming out at The Guardian. You're also on Mastodon, Jason Wilson at Mastodon.online. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. Hopefully, yeah. We'll see you then.
solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.